decorations uh, looked wonderful for Easter. Uh, it's a huge blessing that uh, we have people that come and, uh, and decorate. And then um, the youth, the youth came and they, uh, they had set up a ton of chairs for the memorial service. And then the youth came and removed all those chairs. And uh, we are extremely thankful for them. Uh, if you see a young person, make sure you hug them and kiss them and thank them. Take them out to eat somewhere. Uh, maybe you'll want to charter a bus and take them all up to Bluebell uh, and buy them ice cream. You'll want to do something for them because they did all this uh, work. Uh, we're in Nahum chapter 1, Nahum chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 15. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Nahum Chapter 1, verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way and clouds are the dust beneath its feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossom of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink. They are consumed as stubble completely weathered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who bring good news, who announce peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. I pray now that uh, we will understand that you are a jealous God who cuts down idols and images. Father, we are tempted to go and worship other things. Uh, some here are worshiping the God of this world, and uh, they need to understand their need for a Savior. 
Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would work in their lives and that their minds and their hearts and their understanding would be illuminated and that today will be the day of salvation. Father, for other of us here, we have, um, our hearts have wandered, they've gone away. I pray that your spirit would redirect us to be worshiping you. Father, I pray that you would encourage those who have been uh, continuing faithfully to serve you and worship you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Uh, Elaine Dijin, she wrote an article August 25th, 2020 for Times, and the title was Freedom Means Something Different for I mean, to liberals and conservatives. In this article that she wrote, she kind of made this distinction between liberals hold to the idea of freedom as being a collective whole who hold the government uh, in check, accountable. While conservatives, they believe that uh, freedom is individual and the private enjoyment of one's life and goods. I'm not arguing whether she has understood the difference between one and the other. That's not the point. The point is that she has seen that there are different classes of people that understand the concept of freedom differently, one from another. And I'm sure you've had the experience where you have been witnessing to somebody and you tell them about how God uh, sent his son to die for their sins and that uh, if they will put their faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that his death in their place uh, saves them of their sins, that they, they can have a, a new life. They have to repent and believe of what Jesus Christ did, and, and they will have life. They'll go from being a child of wrath to be an adopted son, daughter of, of God. And as you've explained this to them, they've kindly said, no, thank you, I'm not interested in that. And when you ask why, they they come up with this um, list. I don't know where they get the list from, but they said, if I accept Christ as my Savior, I, I will not be able to go to parties, and I will not be able to drink, and I will not be able to do this and that and this and the other. And on and on their list goes of things that they believe they won't be able to do if they trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's interesting because even between Christians and unsaved individuals, they'll see on one side... Uh, that uh, having a relationship with God means some type of imprisonment, while those who are in Christ find true freedom. D different ideas of freedom and how you can get to freedom and being free. The, the context that we're in, the historical context, we can't really narrow down to a specific date, but rather to a, a general time frame in Israel's history. Uh, during the time of Nahum, that kind of period, uh, was reigning... Uh, King Manasseh. We see his reign in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. He, he was an evil, evil king. And it was quite the contrary of his father, Hezekiah, who he, he had had a, a certain amount of revival. He had, Hezekiah had gone through and, and destroyed the altars that were built up in the high places and gotten rid of idols and, and got away from serving other gods. And, and he focused in on, on worshiping the one true God. It's kind of interesting because as you read Second uh, Chronicles chapter 32, that the, the, the king of Assyria, the king of Nineveh, has, is coming to destroy Jerusalem and capture Judah. And he writes letters to Hezekiah. Hezekiah presents them before the Lord with the prophet Isaiah. And you'll see there that they, um, as you read chapter 32, 
they, they, they start to pray. But in the letters it says, uh, this king, King Hezekiah, he, he's gotten rid of all the idols. He's put all his attention, all his focus on one God. Can, can that God possibly save you from the Syrian army, from the Ninevites? What's interesting is that God did deliver King Hezekiah. We have Manasseh. Manasseh was, was an evil, evil king. He uh, rebuilt all the altars that his father had destroyed. In fact, he goes on to sacrifice his sons to different idols. And it says in verse 6 of uh, 2 Chronicles 33 that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He, he did so much evil that he provoked the Lord to anger. You see, in two different kings, they're related. One decided to put his hope and trust in God and to get rid of all the other idols, and he said, I'm going to put all my focus in on God, and God deliver him. While his son, Manasseh, said, I'm going to have a plurality of gods, and I'll find true fulfillment, true worth in the plurality of gods. And he ended up being taken captive. Well, it's different uh, ideas of freedom, one from the other. Now, Christians must only trust God because only He can really free you. Christians must only trust God because only He can free you. And, and we'll see this in these verses. Uh, verses 9 through 13, we'll see that God will not judge twice. God will not judge twice. It, as we see in this text, the, the first part of the first eight verses we saw, uh, a certain amount of uh, a shift has happened in the text. Uh, starting in verse 6, the topic moved from the creation of the people, so we see in the first couple that there's this uh, movement that, that God is doing, but kind of a shift that happens. We see the seas and the rivers and the mountains and the hills, and they respond appropriately to God. They, they they interact appropriately. When God does certain things, they respond to, to what God does. But, but man does not. Man ends up being his, his enemy, his adversary. Now this shift happens, as, as we keep on seeing over here in verse 9, uh, and it moves and it says, whatever, verse 9, whatever you devise against the Lord. In the Hebrew text, it's actually a question, but it's force is, is a, is a statement. What, what can you devise against the Lord? What can you plan? What can you compute? What type of arrangement can you make against God? What do you think is going to stand? How, how many counselors need to come together against God for there to be a plan that can stand up against God? The question, of course, is, is none. He will make a complete end of it. It doesn't matter how many come and plan. It doesn't matter how many come together to figure out what they're going to do. He's going to completely bring an end to it. It says that distress will not arise up twice. He's not going to have to go back. It's not like after he gets done judging them that they're going to get up again and say, all right, round two. No, it will be all done with round one. And rather quickly. He won't have to come again a second time. This distress will not come up. Uh, verse 10 is an interesting verse because it, um, it has a comparison between three things. Usually in, in Hebrew poetry, 
the verse has a comparison between just two items. And you look at the two items and you see either uh, more information is given about the first item or, or something is contrasted between the two. But here we have three things that are being compared one to another. The thorns, the drunkard, and uh, stubble. These three things. What in the world does one have to do with the other? Before we look at what one has to do with the other, we have to understand who in the world is the they are consumed. Who is the they in that verse? Who is being compared to thorns? Who's being compared to a drunk? Who's being compared to stubble? Well, contextually, if we look at this, verse 1 is addressed to Nineveh. And maybe, maybe he's saying that Nineveh will be like these things. But an antecedent that's closer to this verse uh, verse 10 is verse 8, where it talks about his enemies. And I would argue that it's not just talking about Nineveh in particular, but all his enemies are compared to thorns, drunks, and stubble. Now, in, in what way are these things similar, one with the other? Well, a thorn bush is, is all tangled up. They, and what's interesting is that um, as they grow, they grow grow entangled, and their thorns end up consuming each other. They go up against each other. And as wind blows one against the other, the thorns kind of mash each other up. It, it, and it's, it's entangled one with another. It consumes itself. It, it affects each part of it. The, the drunk also, he, even though he drinks, uh, puts it up to his mouth. And it's not just his mouth that gets drunk. Or his esophagus or his stomach. It's not like it's just his stomach is just as drunk as can be in his hands. And no. You ask him to come up here and speak at the microphone, and he says, which one? You know, he's looking at it. You know? It affects his whole body. He stumbles around because as he drinks, it, it consumes him totally, just like the thorn bush is consumed where the, the thorns are going one against the other. The stubble, it, it, it burns. And as it burns... It provides fuel to burn more stubble. We were uh, in Venezuela. They have the custom of when the, the it's dry season and you have a field, it's kind of easier to burn the field than to go out there and cut all the, the tall grass down. And uh, so the camp was getting ready for camp season and they wanted to burn off the field that they were going to use for, for soccer. So they lit it up, and there was burning, and everything was going really well, but uh, uh, the, the wind started blowing the fire, and it was particularly dry, and so the stubble consumes and brought forth more fuel, and eventually it ended up jumping over the fence and burning down the witch doctor's home, uh, which, by the way, I did not start that fire. I wasn't even there, just in case you're wondering if I'm burning things. I, I didn't. But the stubble created more fuel for more things to be burned. It, it didn't just consume itself and, and go out. So as these things affect one another, so are the wicked. It's not just one wicked person is going to die. All will be consumed. All will be destroyed. All will be affected. And it says uh, they will be consumed up, verse 11, for... Uh, from you has gone forth one who has plotted evil against the Lord. Now, if you look at different interpreters, they'll, they'll kind of be split between the possibilities of who is going forth or who is coming out. Who, who is this making a reference to? 
And some would say that maybe this, this one who has plotted evil is, is maybe Manasseh, one of the kings of, of Judah who, who has come out uh, against Israel and led Israel to do wicked things. Uh, contextually, it, it, does, it would create quite a jump here to be talking about the wicked being Nineveh or the wicked in general, and then jump to Israel. And it's, it's possible, and, and you can hold that and fall within something of evangelicalism. Uh, but I think it's better to think of the wicked. The wicked are these individuals who, who, who go forth, and they plotted evil against the Lord. They, they make plans. They're evil, they're proud, and they're against God. God is the most high, but rather they put themselves as the most high. Verse 7 that says that God is good, but since they are against God, therefore they have to be against His goodness. They come up with an arbitrary goodness. They come up with their own standard of what is good and what is bad. This person is evil. God doesn't make individuals neutral. You can't say, well, I'm against God. I'm not for him, but I'm not against him either. No. They plot evil against the Lord. And then it says in the next line that uh, a wicked counselor. A counselor is a person who, who advises other people how to live. When they give counsel, though, is they're wicked. They're vile. They don't turn people towards God to worship God. They don't turn people to... Uh, bow down before him to glorify him. Rather, they give wicked. That word wicked can have one of two meanings. It can be evil, but it also can be insignificant. The, the counsel that they give is just insignificant. It has no value to it at all. Many times um, you hear people wanting to give um, advice. They receive bad advice on how to parent. Uh, human advice on how to parent, and then they decide they want to share that human advice with, with you, and they tell you, oh, what you got to do is this. And, and, and there we got another generation of, of listening to worthless counsel because they won't submit themselves to God. And we turn to verse 13. It says, then, thus says the Lord, though there are many, th though they are at full strength and likewise many, there could be a whole multitude of people who are his adversaries, who are against him. They have all come together. Even so, they will be cut off and pass away. A whole multitude of people. And they're all intact. They're all full strength, ready to come against the Lord. They'll just pass away. They'll be cut off. Now, there is, seems to be a switch that goes from those who he is afflicting his enemies to somebody else here. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. Israel was afflicted by the Lord. Israel was judged by God. But he's saying he, he will no longer do that. He has punished them, and now he will no longer do that. Verse 13 says, so now I will break his yoke bar upon you. That, that bar that, that made them slaves to, to work for them, he's going to destroy that and, and tear off their shackles, give them true, true freedom. Those who, as it says in verse 7, have, uh, have gone to the Lord because he's a stronghold, 
in the day of trouble. He's going to give these individuals true, true freedom. Now, as we see this, God will not judge the wicked twice. He's not going to do it. He's not going to have to come back a second time. The, the wicked will, will plan. They will. They'll come together and they'll make plans. The text seems to indicate that their perishing is not because they haven't come together with some type of thought process. And it's not because there's a lack of leadership. There, there is leadership. There's individuals who come up and they encourage others to go away from the Lord. They encourage others to, 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 to leave. And they, they have colorful brochures. And they tell you, you can find true happiness if you, if you invest your life in here. Come. You'll, you'll find true fulfillment if you come over here, away from the Lord. You, you don't need the Lord. Come over here. For $9.99 a month, you can be happy. And it's got the colorful brochure and everything. And you're like, what? Oh, I could be happy. But it's away from God. It's by offering wickedness and rebellion against God. Proverbs 1, 10 through 19, talk about the wicked and how they make plans. How they say, we'll have one purse. How, how we're going to... We're going to combine our efforts and we're going to be satisfied. Solomon says, if sinners entice you, don't, don't consent to them. Turn away. <laughs> They've got the PowerPoint presentation and everything. You want true happiness? Come and invest with us. Oh, but it's rebellion against God. God will punish. During Operation Desert Storm, uh, it was when they started using those missiles that they could navigate to hit a target. And um, I, I remember my, my aunt was over in uh, Desert Storm, and so we kind of watched the news quite a bit. And uh, they were talking about these missiles. They were incredible missiles. You could, you could program them to go exactly where you wanted. And in fact, they were great because if a tank was hiding underneath a bridge, the, the missile could come and hit the tank, and destroy the tank, but leave the bridge intact. And so it wouldn't destroy infrastructure in the city. And so they, they thought that this was just fantastic. Although it didn't quite work out that way. There was times when they wanted to destroy a building, and the building beside of it was the one that got hit by the missile, and it went came down. There are times when they tried to destroy the tank underneath the bridge, and they destroyed the bridge and the tank and the people around. They weren't quite accurate with their judgment. It was a lot better than what they had before, but it just wasn't the same. God will punish, and he will punish the wicked. And he won't miss. He won't have to come back a second time. He won't have to do a flyover and say, ah, we missed. We'll try again this time. No. Distress will not rise up a second time. He will execute judgment for those who are wicked. Now the question is, what will the wicked do? What is it that the wicked will do based on this knowledge? We, we see that in verse 4, God rebukes the sea and he makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. Bashan, Carmel, weather. The blossom of Lebanon weathers. Mountains quake. Hills dissolve. Nature seems to know the appropriate action when God addresses nature. Exodus chapter 14, 13 through 31, we have the narrative of when Israel is there in front of the Red Sea. Pharaoh is coming behind with the, with the army. 
And what are they going to do? Moses cries out to God, and God tells him, calm down, raise your staff. And the oceans, the ocean, the sea parted, and Israel crossed by. The sea knew how to respond appropriately to God. Israel crossed. Pharaoh decided to go through, and he didn't quite make it all the way. Joshua chapter 3, 14 through 17. We have the narrative of when uh, Joshua and Israel are about to cross into uh, Canaan, the promised land. And, and they're there, and it's, the river's swollen up, and they come the priest with the ark, and they walk into the Jordan, and the water stops up at Adam, and it drains on down, and Israel's able to walk through on dry ground. The river knows how to act appropriately to God. But does man, created in God's image, know how to respond correctly to God? Does humans know how to respond when, when God says something? How should we respond? I think uh, James chapter 4 gives us a good indication. If you would, turn with me. James chapter 4. We see James is writing to this group of believers and he tells them in verse 4, you adulteresses. Uh, it's interesting because the problem here we see in Nahum, you won't have to keep fingers on both sides, okay? In Nahum, the problem is that God is a jealous God. He doesn't share his glory with anyone else. He doesn't allow anybody to go worship any other deities. The idea of going after other deities or after other things, uh, God considers that adultery. Here in, in James chapter 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or, or do you think that the scriptures speak to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives great, uh, greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what are you supposed to do? Ah, verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. What should the wicked do? The wicked should humble themselves before God. That's what they should do. The earth knows how to react to God appropriately. But do the wicked, do we know how to respond correctly to God? Now, there's true freedom in God. True freedom. We see back in Nahum that uh, God is going to take off this yoke bar. He's going to take up this yoke bar and he's going to destroy their shackles. That, that's, that's what he's going to do. He offers true freedom. Many try to pursue freedom, but they only get enslaved. They get enslaved more and more. Sin always, sin always enslaves you. Those who have accepted Christ as their Savior have been purchased. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 19 and 20 says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, who you have from God, that, that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God 
in your body. There's a paradox that the scriptures presents. Somehow, and it's a true statement, it's axiomatic, somehow by enslaving yourself to God, there's true freedom. Now, that doesn't seem to make any sense. You say, that doesn't make any sense at all. How can I become enslaved, have true freedom? When the world offers me true freedom, and all it does is enslave. Ah, it's the paradox of the Christian life. If you want true freedom, you enslave yourself to God, who purchased you through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you want to be enslaved and have nothing, you pursue the world, and it will take everything from you, and will put you in shackles. God offers true freedom. What's interesting is that many times, even though God offers true freedom, and many times we go to God and we say, uh, I, I, I don't want to be a slave to this anymore. He provides that freedom. Unfortunately, we, we tend to go back. We tend to go back and, and, and put that yoke back on and put those shackles back on. Rather than staying free and in a relationship with God, we go back to those things that enslave us. God offers true freedom. It's paradoxical. It doesn't seem to make sense. But if you want true freedom, you have to enslave yourself to the Lord, to give up your rights and to follow him. Now, God will graciously destroy your idols. And we see that in verse 14. It says, The Lord issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. You, you, you will not be able to have a legacy. There will be no legacy for you. Though you try to develop your career and you try to make a name for yourself and you try and try to be exalted among people, he says it won't happen. It's not going to be perpetuated. In fact, he's going to get really personal because he's going to say, I will cut off idol and image. From the house of your gods, I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Idols are those things that we, we worship. We think that it's going to give us a certain amount of fulfillment. We think it's going to give us a certain amount of pleasure and freedom. And, and so we go and we bow down before those things, thinking that it will give what our heart so much desires. But it doesn't. God says he's going to destroy them. And he's going to prepare a grave for those idols. And he says because they're contemptible or they're insignificant, they're small, they have no value. But what should we do when God graciously destroys our idols? We should worship God. Uh, many times we go around like the scientist who, who uh, goes around with, the, um, with a microscope. A microscope serves the purpose of taking things that are very, very small and making it big so that we can see it. And many times we're like the, the scientists with the microscope. We get insignificant things and we put it under the microscope and we make it huge. And we say, oh, wow, it has value. But it's insignificant. If you didn't have the microscope, you couldn't see that thing. But that's how we live. We take the insignificant things of our heart's desires and we put it under the microscope and we say, oh, 
Look how big it is. When that's not what we should do at all. All we have to do is to go outside and see the grandeur of, of God. The, the creation speaks of His glory. Or just think about salvation. Year after year, the high priest would have to sacrifice a lamb, put the sins of all the nation on it, but it had to happen year after year. Christ does something much better. Not, not just for Israel, for the whole world. He's taken the sins, took, took, took God's wrath, and he offers his righteousness so that when God sees you, it's not that you have to go sacrifice another lamb. He sees Christ's righteousness on you. Made you co-heir with Christ. That, that's something incredible. You can spend the rest of your life contemplating just that aspect and you will not get, you will not exhaust the topic. Just thinking about that one little aspect of God in His work and you won't exhaust it. Even if you spent every day writing and thinking about it, you would not be able to uh, get to the end of it. Don't go around like the scientists looking at insignificant things and trying to blow it up to a, a size. No, look at God and worship God. Idol destruction is a gracious work of God. When God destroys the idols, He is being gracious. Now, you love your idols. I love my idols. I want my idols. I protect my idols. I defend my idols. But God does a gracious work in going in and destroying the idols of our heart. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul is writing to this church and these believers. In the first four verses, he tells them to put their mind and their thoughts on Christ, who sitteth at the right hand of the Father. And then in verse 5, it says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. All these different sins amount to idolatry. When I want to worship my own pleasures over worshiping God. God does a gracious work in destroying the idols of our heart. And we should thank the Lord for doing that. Verse 15 says, back in Nahum chapter 1, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. Uh, an interesting point is that this, uh, this verse in the Hebrew text is actually verse 1 of chapter 2. The Masoretics, as they read through this and they tried to versify it, putting all the different verses, they really felt that chapter 1, verse 15, started a new section which uh, goes into chapter 2. Uh, the Protestants, they said, they looked at it and they decided, I think verse 15 has to do with chapter 1. And so we have a, we have a Protestant Bible, and so that's why it's in part of chapter 1. What tends to happen when there's a disagreement between versification is that different scholars are seeing a, a verse, and they're trying to decide where does it belong. On what side? Does it belong with chapter 1 or does it belong with chapter 2? 
And usually when you have a verse that does that, that's kind of in some text in one section, another verse, uh, another text that's in a different section, it means that what it's relating is related to both what is previous and to what comes afterwards. It, it kind of is a hinge text, uh, it's called. It, it goes with both sides. So we're just going to briefly look at it today, and then next Sunday we're going to look at it again uh, because it will go with the topic that we'll see in chapter 2 because it functions as a hinge between one and the other. Now, it, it, just to briefly mention it says, it talks about uh, the feet of those who are on the mountains uh, who bring good news. Uh, Assyria was destroyed. Babylon came and, and destroyed Assyria. And for a time, Israel had peace. Those who came running upon the hills were able to announce good news. Great news. They were no longer going to be under Assyria. There was peace, and they could announce that. They could celebrate again their feasts. They, they could do those things that they had vowed. And there's the promise that this wicked one would not pass through them because he was cut down. And God, God brought destruction to Assyria. This is fantastic news. Can you imagine a, a nation that is being subject to another nation and to find out that all of a sudden there's freedom? Can you imagine the, the joy they could have peace again. But the ultimate fulfillment of this verse is not found in the historical context of Assyria being destroyed. But ultimately it's found in the theological concept that those who are at war with God can have peace. Because as it says in verse 7, he's a good God, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And there is the true peace. We know from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18, it says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If we have to be reconciled, it means that we were at odds one with another. And specifically, humanity is at odds with God. Verse 19 says, Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, as he has committed to the world uh, the word of reconciliation. Let's go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes and, and kind of puts in a stark contrast between these two things. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, you, uh, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and thereby nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with us, he loved us. And, and it tells about how Christ came and died for us. If we jump over to uh, verse 13, it talks about how, in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For 
He himself is our peace. Christ is the peace here. He's the good news that we were at war, we were unreconciled to God, but through Jesus Christ we are reconciled and we can have peace with God. True peace. But the question is, do you have peace? It's possible to have peace, but it has to be through you accepting that peace, accepting what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Christians must only trust in God because only He can free you. God will not judge twice. God will graciously destroy the idols in your life. And God will give you rejoicing peace. When you think about freedom, you might have a different definition of freedom. And maybe you're thinking freedom is I can be independent, self-sufficient, do whatever I want to do. It's not the freedom that God offers. He offers a much better freedom by becoming a slave to him and obeying him. By obeying every word that he says, there you'll find true freedom. Maybe you've done that. You've trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. But unfortunately, as God dug a grave for those idols, you went and saw where he dug the grave and you've gone and you've, bar- you've undug them. You, you started pulling them out again and brushing them off and, and putting them up again and worshiping those idols. There's no hope. It will just take and take and take from you. And you'll not have freedom. What should a person do? Well, as James said, repent. Repent because God offers true exaltation, true freedom by obeying Him. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word. I pray now as we we consider that Christ gives us true freedom. I I pray that we won't be like those individuals who about 2,000 years ago cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, and then several days later cried, crucify him, crucify him. Father, I pray that we will humble ourselves that we'll repent and that we'll seek to obey you. Father, you are a refuge for us. Father, if there's anyone here who has never accepted Christ, I pray that at the invitation that they'll come forward and that they'll put their trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.